0: Hello and welcome to Science for Uncut, a podcast for developers about building great products. Today I'm excited to welcome Goiko Adjic. Goiko, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. Great. Feel free to go ahead and introduce
1: yourself. So I'm Goiko. Mostly I develop software these days. I'm just launched a new product literally 10 days ago. I've been developing software professionally for 20 years. For the last seven or eight years, I've been mostly building my own products. Before that, I was a consultant, worked with lots of very large investment banks, large telecoms companies, and helping them design, test, and develop better products. When I was a consultant, I was kind of specialized in agile and lean quality, everything from testing to product management and bridging the communication gap between developers and other roles. I think that's kind of my niche. For some reason, I really don't know why I got into this way of trying to figure out how do developers communicate better to testers, to analysts, with clients in order to build more successful products. I was always approaching that from kind of a developer perspective, but that journey is really taking me on a learning path to learn a lot more about lots of other things that happen as part of the software process, not just development. And I wrote a bunch of books about that. Probably the most popular one is Spec by Example. Some other books I wrote, Impact Mapping, Bridging the Communication Gap, Humans versus Computers. My last book, Running Serverless, is about deploying to Several platforms that got published about a year
0: and a half ago. Great. I uh, saw so you speaking at a number of conferences in these pre-COVID times, and there are a lot of uh, yeah recordings on YouTube that you know, our listeners can check out. And yeah, of course, the books. You kind of gave the intro to this of bridging a gap. You're not exactly sure, but you ended up spending a lot of your time and focus on bridging that gap between business, product, and developers. So, can you share maybe a bit? based on all these years thinking about this subject, what advice can you give to developers in terms of communicating to business and how to be more successful in that area? So one of the things I guess is interesting that's
1: happening now is we've become, as an industry, much better at getting people who build to talk more directly to people who need the software. You know, 20 years ago it was very usual for people to spend months in doing some kind of specialist analysis to create large documents that then get translated to some design documents that get translated to something else. And then it comes to a developer who's kind of five levels deep in an organization and has no idea what the people who wanted the software originally want. As an industry, now we're a lot better with developers communicating more directly and with less levels of fewer levels of indirection to customers. But then we've also somehow gotten to the point where almost the customers are expected to provide this design of the solution. I think for many organizations, close collaboration between developers and customers means do whatever the customers told developers they want. And I think that's very dangerous and that's very, very wrong. We have as an industry, lots of research and and lots of failed projects and lots of books about why that's wrong. And the first thing that I think, you know, somebody who's been a developer and mostly been in a technical role rather than trying to do this communication analysis role is not to really trust what people tell us they want, but to really figure out what do they need. I think there's a massive difference between what people say they want and what people actually need. And trusting too much that people who are not really solution designers, people who are financial managers, people who are accountants, people who are users of our software, to expect of them to provide the features, how the software is supposed to work is totally insane. I like to compare that by, you know, if you want to buy a car, you don't go and say, oh, I want the engine to work like this. I mean, you'd have to be a fantastic expert in engine design to be even taken seriously for that. But that's kind of how people buy software all the time. And because we are so much faster building things in software than in the real world, people think it's, oh, you know, I just want a button here, I just want something there, I just want, you know, this kind of report And what we end up doing as an industry is delegating the responsibility for solution design to people who are really not solution designers. And that's one of the core problems, I think, of so much unsuccessful software and so much mediocre software out there. So as developers, we really need to be better at understanding what people actually need and figuring out ways of extracting that information from them. Because I think if they knew how to communicate that, they would have communicated that in the first place. But it's much, much easier to come up with a shopping list of features than to
0: actually explain what people need. Hey, everyone. Sanford has published an open source book called CICD with Docker and Kubernetes. It combines just the right amount of best practices and practical advice for shipping cloud-native apps. Download your free copy today at sanfordci.com. Yeah, it is a complex problem, it includes a lot of communication. And I myself am also a developer by trade. Communication is maybe not our strongest thing. We are great with computers. Yeah, over time, of course, we can become better with communicating with people, but it is not something that in you know five years of university we were really trained at. Maybe just one or two subjects. So you also mentioned that you spend a lot of time in a product design role. So what are maybe some tips that you could give to developers that can improve in this area?
1: Probably the best tip I can give to somebody who is just starting out at kind of that position is to focus on behavior changes. That was one of my biggest lessons about 10 years ago, from a horrible failure where we had probably the best technical team I've ever worked with, but we spent an insane amount of money delivering something that at the end had no value. We need to understand where value can potentially come from, and we need to figure out ways of understanding whether that value is being realized or not. And that's very difficult to do with software because. If we look at revenue, if you look at market share, if you look at any kind of usual value indicators people will talk about, they come on a very, very delayed cycle. You do something now, it needs a lot of other things to come together, and then it starts kind of getting its market, and maybe six months later or a year later, you know if it's a good idea or not. But that's too late to actually go and fix up stuff. So there's lots and lots of models around value, and one of the models that I think is incredibly useful for especially delivering software online where you can observe and test things sooner is looking at customers' or users' behavior changes. And what I'd suggest to you know people who are just starting out is for any piece of work you get given or any piece of work you can think about, try and understand what is the expected behavior change out of that. Then you can very soon after you deliver something, try to measure Did that behavior change happen or not? And is it even going in the right direction or is it not going in the right direction at all? One of the best stories about that that people can read online is 40 Shades of Blue. 40 Shades of Blue is this famous episode when the head of design at Google, a guy called Doug Bowman, came up with the idea to change the color of the links on the Google homepage. Because this was, I don't know, change number five or six, the engineers were a bit reluctant to keep changing it because it looked like he just fiddling around with it. And they tried to understand why. And unfortunately, in large organizations, when you ask why, you get told because, you know, somebody with a high salary said why. And in this case, you had a head of design. So he's the person who should be making decisions about colors, made a decision about colors But instead of just asking why, they kind of asked that in a slightly different way, and they said, Well, you know, what's this going to change? How is somebody going to work differently or behave differently as a result of this? And said, Well, you know, this color is going to be much more noticeable, so people will click more on the links. And Google engineers that night, not being lazy, deployed 40 different shades of blue. And the fascinating thing about this is that you can actually read both sides of the story. And I give you the link so you can publish it in the podcast you can read doug's side of the story and you can read you know other side of the story and in doug's side of the story as a result of that he got so frustrated and quit and he wrote a really angry blog post how you cannot do good design at google because you're asked to prove everything and in the other side of the story you have data if they had kept his color and expanded it to 100% of the users for a whole year, Google would have lost something like $250 million on people clicking fewer times. Now, that's a really interesting aspect of this because we can think about, well, how much does a software feature cost? Does a software feature cost a couple of hours of development and testing, or does it cost $250 million you lose because people are not clicking more on the link? And not just how much does it cost, but you know, why does somebody who really should have the authority to make this decision make a wrong decision about this? And, you know, there's 5 million reasons why. Maybe that color looks perfect if you print it on a Heidelberg printer that costs 5 million euros, but when you show it on a cheap Lenovo phone, that's not that color. It's that CSS, but it, you know, has nothing to do with how the color is supposed to look. Maybe it looks... Much more noticeable on paper, but it doesn't really look much more noticeable on a small screen with, you know, outside. So instead of trying to kind of, you know, map out all these different potential problems, what they focused on was what is the expected behavior change. And then they could look at, is this behavior change happening or is this behavior change not happening? So we can spot unexpected things. We can spot when something's working much better than, you know, what it needs to do. So my number one advice for people in that position is try to understand what the behavior change is. Try to understand how much something should change. Once we have a change, we have a direction. How much do we need to go in that direction? You know, does this need to be 500% more or 5% more? Completely different solution might be needed. And then when you do stuff, really, really measure whether it's going in that direction or not. A couple of book references that might help to kind of dig deeper into this. I know we don't have a lot of time to, you know, understand the whole theory of it. There's a lovely book by Mark Schwartz called The Art of Business Value. Mark was the IT director of the U.S. Immigration Services. And he took over that department at a really curious period where they had to deliver some massive, massive, massive project. And they spent a year and a half doing business analysis and didn't touch software at all. And they ended up throwing everything they've analyzed into trash and starting from scratch. He has this lovely story in the book where he talks about how they realized the purpose of this whole thing is to get human case operators to process more cases per day. So that's the number basically they measured. And Every piece of software they delivered, they would very quickly after measure, is this increasing or decreasing the number of cases per day and things like that. Another book that's really interesting about this topic is Four Disciplines of Execution. Four Disciplines of Execution is a book about organizations that are really, really successful executing their plans and what do they do differently as opposed to organizations that are not. And this is where the whole idea of Measuring leading indicators versus lagging indicators comes in, and in the book, they talk about behavior changes as one of the most powerful ways of measuring leading indicators. Another book I love about this is What Customers Want by Anthony Ulwick. In the book, he explains very nicely why customers can't really even explain what they want, and when they say what they want, that's not necessarily true, and how to understand what they actually need. Anthony's book is kind of slightly older. He is the originator of the jobs to be done, theory and outcome-driven planning. And again, he uses kind of changes in how people work, live, expected changes as a way to describe the outcomes of the project. One of my books as well, Impact Mapping here, Impact Mapping is a lightweight visualization technique that uses this idea of behavior changes to connect the deliverables we expect to create with the business goals and then show what's a good way to roadmap and plan out a larger piece of work.
0: Hey, I'm going to take a quick break here and tell you that For has a new book out called CICD with Docker and Kubernetes. If you are looking to deploy cloud-native apps, it's going to show you the most productive way of doing that. And the best of all, it's free. Download your free copy today at samforci.com. Something that I might add to this is that in running like a CI CD business that we have, we are you know very focused when we are speaking with customers, and uh, you know what we are trying to help them is a fast feedback loop, you know. So, how much time do I have to wait before I figure out that something you know works the way I intended? So I guess it's a bit of like oversimplification, but could be applied to what you're saying generally around business, you know, and delivering that value. So, what are the optimal ways to have that feedback loop faster, and then, you know, adjust your actions and where do you invest? And uh, something that we also touched upon in the prep call, generally speaking, about you know the developer journey and career from early days until you might become like a senior, reaching a certain level of expertise in the organization that you're working on. And then what do you do next? Do you get a bit bored? Do you then progress maybe and um, maybe read all the books that you mentioned and try to progress, you know, help your organization in that area? Or what are maybe some alternatives that you could do to, you know, light that fire again? <laughs> Can you maybe share a bit on that?
1: Yeah, I guess that's a very interesting question. The answer is personal for everybody. I got a bit kind of bored about 10 years ago so. I started programming as a kid. I started programming very, very young because it was fun and it became a lovely hobby. And then at some point it became a hobby where people wanted to pay me money to do, and then it was an easy thing to, you know, decide to do that in life. But then after a while I at least got stuck in corporate politics and stuck in doing over and over the same type of stuff and it really stopped being interesting. Yes, you can find interest in other ways of working or you can find interest in building slightly different things. But for me, like the two things that really allowed me to rekindle the fire and find the joy of programming again, working on open source stuff and launching my own products. I think for me, building stuff for myself and building basically my own products that other people use allowed me to discover the joy of programming again and allowed me to maybe realize that you don't have to get stuck in building another stupid website with another stupid database that does some stupid SQL queries. And yes, these things are important and you know, in a large organization there's always going to be a lot of this software that's not that interesting to build but it's important and we keep building it. But if you launch your own products, you can actually work on stuff that's interesting for you and important for you personally. I strongly recommend anybody who's stuck in a career and doesn't really enjoy what they do anymore to make it enjoyable again. And I think this is a profession where I at least find immense joy out of deep immersion in a problem and spending a lot of time solving something. And it's almost like magic because programmers turn caffeine and a bit of, you know, night work into something that makes a difference to other people's lives, something that drives cars, something that, you know, shoots rockets into space, something that allows you to recognize cats on the internet. And it's magic. It's pure magic. And lots of people i worked with as a consultant in large organizations just get stuck in boring jobs and lose the fire you know they use the magic to basically do rote work that they stopped enjoying first we built this mind mapping tool that now you know millions of children use worldwide in school work and we didn't set out to build A product for children. We set out to build something completely different, but on the way we discovered one thing, we discovered another, things change. And that's really interesting. It's very dynamic. And building products for yourself means there's nobody to tell you that something is not possible, nobody to tell you that something is not allowed. It's really up to you to do these things. And I find immense joy in doing things like that. And I think anybody who's bored at their work maybe should try something like that. I know quitting to, you know, do your own stuff is a very high risk thing. So maybe don't quit immediately, but start it as a side thing, start it as an open source thing, find some ways of building things that are interesting for you and playing with interesting technology. And
0: you will be able to find the passion again. I can connect to that. And I wasn't stuck personally in a big corporation for many years, but I did build a couple of like e-commerce websites with you know selling something. And yeah, there is that database and yet another design update and so on. For me and my partner also with for it was like from the early phase we wanted to build something. You know, we were kind of saying that we want something that has a pricing page. Because yeah, when you are like independent. I don't want to spoil your story or to scare people from that. But yeah, you they have that responsibility of you know, earning money on your own. But it's a kind of a mixed thing. You make something and people are on a daily basis interacting with that. And there is that whole universe of problems that you have to solve. All what you explained in the, in the previous part of the talk, where you have to figure out, is it helping people? Is it solving their problems? And one of the feedback loops is obviously a money. Are they ready to pay for it? And as you said, it can come with a significant delay. Like kind of a personal story for us, it was, uh, we were running a consultancy of like, you know I don't remember exactly, but up to five people. And on the side for maybe a year and a half to two years, we were, you know, working on Sanford in parallel. And at some point we figured out, okay, there is a trajectory, which is, you know, let's say the curve is steep enough that we will be able to survive. So we stopped doing consulting and switched to focusing on Salesforce.
1: My journey is kind of very similar to that. I kind of stopped being a renter programmer to become more a kind of a consultant where I was engaging with people for kind of shorter periods of time, more intensively to help them fix, you know, more important problems. But then you get some free time in between engagements where you can do other things. And I wrote a bunch of books, but then I realized really, What I'm passionate about is building software, not writing books. All the writing books is fun as well, but I'm more passionate about building software and I wanted to kind of build some software on the side. And we did start with knowing that we wanted to build something that kind of was commercially successful, but effectively doing it as a side thing with a consulting gig helped finance us while we were exploring what to build. I mean, we built a bunch of stupid things until we reach something that's actually useful. At some point, we were even building a video game that wouldn't go anywhere. We wanted to build a mobile event booking up that, again, didn't go anywhere. But being able to go through these experiments relatively quickly and then figuring out what actually makes sense, what doesn't make sense, and what has a trajectory, as you said, helps kind of choose something at the end. And then I think... Also, being able to understand when maybe the reality is slightly different from what you expect and seeing what people actually want as opposed to what you want to build is also interesting. But maybe that's a completely different discussion. How do you draw the line between what you're passionate about building and what people want you to build? For us, I think we realize as long as we focus directly on consumers where individual contribution of an individual user value is relatively low, we can say no. So, you know, lots of people, especially in the early days of a product, have feature requests. Some of these feature requests make sense. Some of these feature requests make no sense at all. If you have a very high value of a single customer, then that customer can insist on certain things. For us, The lucky thing was we were focused on consumers that, you know, on average give us $2.99 a month. So if somebody says, oh, you know, I insist you build this, otherwise I'm not going to use you. Well, you know, $2.99 is very easy to give up. Again, at the same time, listening to what, you know, people really need helps you build a good product. And we didn't set out to build a product for schools, but we ended up building a product for schools. So it was kind of an intersection of something that we felt passionate about and felt where we can make a big impact and people wanted it. I don't know how much your original idea changed over time or whether it changed at all, but for us, maybe the main line stayed the same, but lots of things on the side changed.
0: To comment on how much the idea changed, well, in some aspects, we are very fortunate that we are also the users of our software. So when developers build something for developers... There is that feedback loop, which is happening in your office every day Mm. on whatever you do. Is it a design change or like speed improvement or, you know, regression in some area? From that perspective, it hasn't changed drastically. But over time, as the customer base is getting larger, there are more and more details that you need to take care of. As you said in the beginning, you have some mental model in your head, you know, how people work and how you would maybe think that people should work. But then there is reality what people need depends a lot on what environment they are so are they building a product you know in a well funded company with a, you know some high growth trajectory or is it maybe a consulting agency doing you know dozens of projects so needs of people are different and after a while details are becoming more and more important and you have bigger and bigger impact we are not nowhere near that scale of like changing the link, that it will make a 250 million impact on our our revenue. But yeah, it is one of the things that is interesting to me and kind of keeps the thing going and why it's still interesting.
1: I guess when you guys started out, cloud was not really kind of a big thing yet. Or was the original thing going to be always kind of a cloud-hosted solution?
0: Well, I think that cloud was becoming a cloud, at least in the area of like developer tools. So GitHub was launched, like, I think 2008, 2009, it took off and Git all around that. And we felt left in the gap between Heroku, which was also launched in 2009. So super easy way to deploy apps, scale them, you know, something never seen before. So we felt a gap in between. So I think that those years were years where generally SaaS tooling for developers was appearing. But yeah, I might say that yeah, cloud was not the cloud still at that point. Something that I want to maybe just highlight from what you said previously is that you built a number of things, want to build a game and this and that. So what I can maybe add is that it's very important to have those, we can call them failures. We can call them experiments. I would say they're experiments because you learn a lot along the way. And it's maybe for some people who get lucky or like are really you know super smart in some area that get right the things the first time, but I would say for the rest of us, for the majority of people, you need to have those failed experiments. You know,
1: you highlighted an interesting thing there. It's interesting to keep the learning out of that. For example, that game we built, we were building it as a browser prototype, and then we were going to build it natively, and doing that allowed us to experiment a lot with css3 i didn't have a chance to experiment that much with css later and we did kill the game because it we realized you know we're not any good at building a game and it was boring to play but that whole learning everything i learned about kind of css3 allowed me later to improve the main product and even kind of this other new thing i built so i think having those kind of bits and lessons of learning is really, really important. And I think sometimes building a side thing that you know you're going to throw away allows you to just keep the learning and incorporate it into something else. Once you have a product that's relatively successful, big experiments on it, especially technology experiments, tend to be costly. If you start using an experimental database and it turns out it's bad, and you have customers on it, then that's a bit risky. But doing it on a side product where, hey, it might turn out to be interesting, it might turn out to be kind of total rubbish, is something you can very easily escape from and keep the learning. And I think one of the things maybe I'd suggest also for people is try to build these kind of side projects. And it's unfortunate that companies very rarely invest in building learning side projects and side products. One of the things I've tried to do in a few places where I had the influence of doing that was actually to deliberately build side products that would be open sourced or would be something where people can experiment. And that's also a way to let engineers play with new technology where, you know, everybody wants to play whatever the hot new technology is today. I've kind of, you know, jumped out a bit of kind of the super mega trends, but there's always some new interesting framework or some new interesting tool people want to play around with and they get stuck in all their technology for the main product. Having this deliberate side product that people can build is a way of, you know, experimenting with the latest, whatever, Svelte framework or React uh, plugin or something like that, that if it turns out to be brilliant, excellent, you know, put it in your main tool. If not, just throw it away and keep the learning. And I think, Absolutely. I love what you just said about that.
0: Yeah. And even if you don't end up, you know, using that technology, you can maybe just bring some ideas back to your old technology and your technology stack and improve something.
1: Yeah. You never really know what's going to be important three years from now or five years from
0: now. Exactly. Okay. Great. So, Goiku, thank you for this uh, interesting discussion. I hope that our listeners will also get. value out of it and yeah good luck with your products and uh, hopefully the situation will uh, change and you can continue doing great talks that you are doing all around the world yeah thanks very much for inviting me to do this